EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, August 19th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. The Council for Responsible Sport has given a silver level certification to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in recognition of the environmental standards that have been implemented over the last few years. The last Indy 500 race successfully met all environmental standards by improving water usage efficiency and reducing energy usage. Indiana Motor Speedway President Doug Bowles said that this, quote, represents an important milestone as they work toward our goal of becoming carbon negative, unquote. A new report from the Union of Concerned Scientists has found that Midwestern farmers are beginning to face a loss of income in extremely dangerous working conditions due to the effects of man-made climate change. According to the report, farm workers are one of the most vulnerable types of jobs in regard to heat-related illness and death. Similarly, the heat waves will cause continual crop failure that will result in billions of dollars in earnings loss. The report calls for federal heat standards to become laws in order to protect outdoor workers and farmers. Another problem faced by Indiana farmers comes in the form of black shadows in the sky. Corrigapus atratus, known as the black vulture, has, over the last decade, begun terrorizing farmers of southern Indiana. The black vultures spend their time flying over pastures, waiting for a chance to strike weak and vulnerable livestock to feed upon. Unlike the more common turkey vulture, the black vulture does not always wait to feed on dead animals. At the beginning of this month, the Indiana Farm Bureau launched a new program that allows farmers to gain permits to legally kill these black vultures, despite their protection status. For people interested in learning more about the program, please visit infb.org backslash black vultures. That's all for your environmental news brief for WFHB. I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Winesapple reports on Indiana wetlands. Winesapple speaks with Christopher Kraft, professor of rural land policy at Indiana University, and John Lawrence, executive director of Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. The Indiana Business Journal has given us an update on climate change in Indiana. While intense heat waves and wildfires scorch the western U.S. and freak rainstorms spawn massive floods in Europe and China, 
the weather in central Indiana has been fairly tame so far this year. Indeed, Indiana very well could sidestep some of the most extreme effects of climate change, but don't get lulled into complacency, says Jeffrey Dukes, director of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center and a professor of forestry and natural resources. Indiana's weather already has been altered by man-made climate change, and the effects could be significantly more intense in coming decades, Duke says. Since 1895, Indiana's statewide annual average temperature has risen by 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit, and some models show it rising another 5 degrees Fahrenheit by mid-century. Winters will be shorter, and the number of days above 95 degrees could rise by dozens per year. The state also is getting wetter. Since 1895, average annual precipitation in Indiana has increased by about 15%, or about 5.6 inches. Models show winters and springs are likely to be much wetter by mid-century. Heavy rain events will increase flooding risk and increase the amounts of uh, pollutants washing into waterways from city streets and farm fields. As the country decides how hard it wants to fight climate change, Midwestern states have become battlegrounds for the nation's energy future, according to the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Greenhouse gas spewing fossil fuels have been the primary fuel source for electric generation in Indiana for decades, mainly in the form of coal but climate-friendly renewable energy sources like wind and solar power are making serious inroads in the state. Renewable energy systems supplied about 9% of the state's total electricity net generation in 2020, more than doubling its share of the market in about a decade. Still, Indiana shares the distinction with 16 other states of having the least renewable energy. Progress has not been easy for solar and wind energy suppliers in Indiana, and other parts of the Midwest, as proposed projects have faced opposition from concerned local citizens and groups with ties to the fossil fuel industry. Industry representatives and consultants discussed strategies to address real local concerns and combat targeted misinformation during the American Clean Power 2021 siting and Environmental Compliance Virtual Summit in July. With more than a third of all Indiana counties restricting renewable energy projects with strict local ordinances, speakers said the Hoosier State was quickly becoming one of the most difficult parts of the country to get a renewable energy project approved. For example, one wind project was canceled because a landowner complained that the shadow cast by the blades of a wind turbine one half mile from their home frightened their cat. Quote, over the years, we've definitely seen a rise in the effectiveness and prevalence of renewable energy opposition in the communities where we work. In particular, we've seen it get increasingly difficult for projects to receive the local permits that they need from local governments. And we've witnessed more and more counties and townships passing restrictive ordinances and flat-out moratoria on renewable energy development, end quote, said Davy Wilson, Vice President of Public Affairs for Apex Clean Energy. The public radio station at Ball State reported on the impact of President Joe Biden signing an executive order to make half of all new cars sold by 2030 electric vehicles. That could have a big impact in Indiana, which is one of the top states for automotive production and for ethanol. 
Several automakers were moving toward electric vehicles before Biden's announcement, but it's unclear if they can meet that deadline. At least two, with plants in Indiana, Toyota, and Subaru, won't have an all-electric car on the market until next year. Professor Amru Awashe, Executive Director of the IUPUI Business and Sustainability Innovation Lab, said these manufacturers are already putting the infrastructure in place and making arrangements with suppliers. Auto parts manufacturers that rely on gas vehicles, however, could see business decline. Awashe said there is an opportunity for those companies to switch gears and start manufacturing things like battery technology and battery infrastructure, which will be needed to power cars around the world. Biofuels aren't mentioned in Biden's recent plans. Chris Blilly is with Growth Energy, an association of renewable fuel producers. He said in order for the Biden administration to reach its overall climate goals, ethanol will have to play a role in the new re renewable fuel standards. Quote, keep in mind there are, you know, more than 250 million vehicles on the road today that will continue to be on the road for decades to come that will continue to use liquid fuels, end quote, Blilly said. It's unclear what effect 50% new electric vehicle sales would have on jobs at biofuel refineries in Indiana and Hoosier farmers that grow corn for biofuels. EPA whistleblowers have revealed that the leadership at the agency has been censoring the hazardous ramifications of new chemical products. Four EPA scientists have come forward to speak out about how high-level staff have been pressuring employees to downplay potential for harm when completing assessments for new chemical products. A statement from the four whistleblowers declared that the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention is fundamentally broken. The whistleblowers reported multiple instances of interference in order to obtain approval of chemicals with potential to cause significant harm including cancer, miscarriages, and birth defects. When the scientists who spoke up raised concerns at the Office of Chemical Safety, they often found themselves transferred to other departments within EPA. What's more, high-level staff changed the chemical assessments they were working on so the products could be approved. Whistleblowers reported that Office of Chemical Safety leadership replaced chemical assessments that identified significant risks with assessments that downplayed or outright ignored those risks. As a result of those emissions, chemical manufacturers left off labels that would warn people against using potentially dangerous chemicals while pregnant. Another critical emission led EPA to approve the use of chemicals that exceed the agency's own safety limit by 15,000 times. EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs suffers from the same corruption. There, Waiving a pesticide manufacturer's requirement to submit toxicity studies is prevalent. EPA's corruption is harming people and the environment. Yet all the whistleblowers said their complaints with EPA's Inspector General or Office of Scientific Integrity remained unaddressed for months. Whistleblowers and activists are calling for Congress to immediately investigate corruption at EPA. As the Trump administration waned, its EPA made large changes to a key section of the Clean Water Act, Section 401, and undermined 
the ability of states and tribal authorities to protect people's water quality from dirty energy projects like fracked gas pipelines and to ensure those projects don't have devastating impacts on local water quality or violate state law. Now the Biden administration is reviewing those changes and considering a replacement rule to correct them. The Section 401 water quality certification process has been critical for blocking fracked gas pipelines in several states. So it's a tool we need to protect and ensure it works as intended. States have to be able to reject projects that would harm people's water and their rivers and streams. Trump-era changes shortened the amount of time states have to review projects and limited the impacts they can consider. Failure to comply waives their authority to deny certification. This situation forces states to ignore some of the most damaging impacts of dirty infrastructure projects, making things easier for fossil fuel companies and reducing the chances that states can reject a dirty energy proposal. If left in place, Trump's changes to Section 401 will lead to the approval of more dirty energy projects without state review endangering aquatic life and the drinking water of people around the country. The oil and gas industry's profits depend on keeping states from exercising their right to use the 401 water certification process as intended to reject dirty energy projects that would harm water quality or violate state law. Before the Trump administration altered it, Section 401 state certification was a critical and effective tool for protecting people and the environment, and the Biden administration can reinstate it in its original form. The Energy News Network reports that roughly four-fifths of U.S. coal plants are either scheduled to close by 2025 or now cost more to operate than new nearby solar or wind power would, new research shows. The May analysis comes from Energy Innovation, Policy and Technology, based in San Francisco. The work highlights the accelerating pace of the clean energy transition, even aside from the social costs of coal plant pollution. Out of the 235 coal plants in the U.S., 182 plants, or 80 percent, are uneconomic or already retiring, according to the report. The costs for new solar or wind are falling faster than previously anticipated. Meanwhile, the capacity factor for existing coal plants fell to 40% last year, down from 53% in 2017. A lower capacity factor means plants are being run less often and not providing full output, which increases operating and capital costs. And now for our feature in which WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzaffel reports on Indiana wetlands Weinzaffel speaks with Christopher Kraft, Professor of Rural Land Policy at Indiana University, and John Lawrence, Executive Director of Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. We turn to Nathaniel Weinzaffel for more. Over 110 organizations and individuals signed and delivered a letter to the governor's office requesting a veto. The signers represented all parts of Indiana and multiple forms of environmental organizations. However, Despite the unprecedented amount of opposition, on April 29th, Governor Eric Holcomb signed Senate Bill 389, which reduces the amount of wetlands in the state of Indiana. Meanwhile, in a quiet part of Monroe County, lies the peaceful wetlands at Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. 
Unaffected by the changes in the Senate bill, the wetlands found here will continue to fulfill its environmental purpose for generations. However, Executive Director John Lawrence is a strong supporter of all wetlands and emphasizes the importance that wetlands have for the state of Indiana. Wetlands are just incredibly important uh, reservoirs of biodiversity, and they also provide really important uh, ecosystem functions. Flood control is a big one. They, they act like uh, kind of like a big sponge. Uh, you know, soak hold soaks up they soak up water, hold back water. Help they help negate flooding. Uh, they also reduce uh, pollution uh, in in waterways by collecting uh, uh, pollutants, uh, which can you know include uh, excess nutrients. Wetlands help uh, retain those nutrients locally so they don't go downstream. Uh, they're also just really important habitat for plants and wildlife. The example are Bean Blossom Bombs Nature Preserve. We have uh, recorded over a dozen uh, species of, that are endangered or of conservation concern there including the Indiana bat, which is uh, uh, federally endangered, uh, Kirtland snake, which is a cute little snake uh, that uses crawfish burrows. Uh, it's state endangered and, and, and several other things. So, and a lot of these uh, plants and animals uh, rely on the wetland habitat. They're not found anywhere else. If the Bean Blossom Bonhams Nature Preserve is protected, then what exactly will the controversial bill the governor signed do? The bill deals with the wetlands of Indiana that are protected by state laws. Of the wetlands in Indiana, 80 to 90 percent are not protected by the federal government, but have been protected at the state level. Under state protection, there are three classes of wetlands. The bill removes Class 1 wetlands from state protection and also reduces the amount of Class 2 wetlands while leaving Class Three wetlands intact. The differences between the three classes were explained to me by Christopher Kraft, a professor of rural land policy at Indiana University, Bloomington. So again, this is back to the state of Indiana, that isolated wetlands bill. They say it's a Class One, the lowest quality if there's been you know, hydrologic alteration, like it's been ditched or drained or filled, or it has more than 50% invasive species. So if it meets one or both of those criteria, they say it's a class one. And under the old bill, a lot of these wetlands were protected. Um, if they were larger than a half an acre, they would be protected. You know, Senate Bill 389 has said we're doing away with class one. We're, we're not going to, these are not wetlands under this bill. And if you have class one isolated wetlands on your property, then you can do what you want with them. Well, let's go to class three wetlands. They're the highest quality. These are ones that, um, and I think under the existing 389 bill, these aren't being affected. Um, they're, they were protected before, and they're protected now. They, they're high quality, or they have high species richness, or they have rare endangered species. There aren't that many of those. You know, there's a lot more Class One wetlands, and then Class Two are kind of in the middle. They're not, you know, severely altered or dominated by invasive species, but they're not these 
super high quality sites. And Senate Bill 389 affected class two wetlands by saying that, um, it used to be that I think if it was more than a quarter acre in size, it would be protected. And I think under Senate Bill 389, it said, nah, if it's got to be bigger. If it's more than three-eighths of an, an acre, we'll protect it. But if it's less than that, we're not going to, it's not going to be protected. According to the National Water Summary Wetlands Resources Report, wetlands cover over 813,000 acres of Indiana, and 80% of the state's remaining wetlands fall under the categories of Class 1 and Class 2 and are now susceptible to being drained. With this information in mind and knowing the importance of wetlands, Professor Kraft explained who benefits from the passing of this bill and who benefits from the change to the permits needed to remove wetlands. Well, I think um, for people who advocate growth and um, that sort of economic growth, I think that this is an argument that they would like because it's, you know, some of this land is off the table to development or if you do want to develop it, you're going to have to go through the permitting process and that can be pretty lengthy and pretty rigorous. I've worked with some landowners who've kind of gotten caught up in, in that. Um, you know, that's people I think who stand to benefit. You know, on the other hand, Indiana's not known for having you know, the abundant natural resources some states like, say, Michigan have. And so when you take some of these protections away, um, you take away some of the limited natural resources that are still present in the state. For many farmers and land developers, the permitting process for removing wetlands is quite difficult. And the bill relaxes this process and makes it easier for Class 1 and some Class 2 wetlands to be removed. While this allows development to be easier at the moment, it does not account for the effects that the lack of wetlands could have on the future. Opponents of the bill, including the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, have argued that the bill leaves Indiana ill-prepared to face the floods that will follow the increases in rainfall expected in future years, as well as limit essential earth processes such as water filtration, water storage, and groundwater replenishment. Despite the passing of this bill, there's still great work being done to protect the wetlands of Indiana and restore old wetlands throughout the state. Mr. Lawrence described what effect the bill will have on the goals of the Bean Blossom Nature Reserve and its organizing body, the Sycamore Land Trust. It certainly just means that uh, efforts by uh, conservation groups like Sycamore, the Nature Conservancy, our, our other local land trusts, uh, throughout the state to do what we can to uh, acquire wetlands and areas that can be restored to wetlands and then put in the large commitment of, of time and effort to, number one, do any restoration work that's needed, and then, of course, to uh, monitor, and maintain, and, and protect that area in perpetuity, that work just becomes all the more important when there are less efforts on the regulatory side to, to protect wetlands. Lawrence says for those interested in helping conservation groups who are stepping up to the plate to protect Indiana wetlands, the Bean Blossom Bonhams Nature Preserve always welcomes volunteers. There are a lot of ways you can support our work. Uh, 
most basic, of course, is be a donor. We have memberships starting at uh, $40 a year. Uh, it all goes into uh, making our work possible of uh, not only acquiring more land, but also protecting and, and uh, maintaining the land that is already in our care. We also have volunteer events. Um, best way people can get involved with that is uh, sign up for our e-newsletter. Uh, you can go to our website, sycamorelandtrust.org. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. For Eco Report, I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And I'm Juliana Daly. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide you the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. When was the last time you climbed the fire tower at McCormick's Creek State Park? Take advantage of the fire tower hike on Saturday, August 21st from 10 to 11 a.m. Meet naturalist Sarah at the Canyon Inn to take a hike to the fire tower and climb it if you dare. Along the trail, you will learn about McCormick's Creek natural and historical past. It's time for the full sturgeon moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, August 21st from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Oak Ridge Shelter for a night under the full sturgeon moon on Trail 7. Learn all the folklore and history of the full sturgeon moon and why it's called that. The trail is considered easy. Enjoy a Discovery Trail hike at Brown County State Park on Friday, August 27th from 11 a.m. to noon. Meet outside the Nature Center and meet with the naturalist to learn about the different stops along the Discovery Trail. The trail is one-half mile in length and is considered moderate. However, there are exposed roots and rocks along the path. Come to the Nature Center at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, August 28th from 10 to 11 a.m. to learn all about composting. This workshop will have you making your own composting bin and you will learn the many benefits of composting. Pre-registration is required. Please email Sarah to reserve your spot at svanhoosier at dnr.in.gov. Take a nocturnal night hike at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Saturday, August 28th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. You can be what goes bump in the night. This naturalist-led hike will teach you about nocturnal animals and the adaptations that allow them to thrive in the dark. Bring a flashlight or headlamp. Meet in the parking lot.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinsapfel. David Lyman assembled the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly, that's me, compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And this is Eco Report.